Well, let's come to God's word now, and let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. A gracious Heavenly Father, you are the living God. Uh, please, uh, by your Spirit, speak to our hearts as we hear your word now. Lord, please use me in my weakness uh, to speak your word faithfully and truthfully. Father, may we leave uh, here tonight with a deeper trust in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, I love listening to Christians share their story about how they came to know and follow Jesus. Uh, If you're not familiar with church, uh, we usually call these stories as Christians uh, Christian testimonies. And from what many of you tell me after a baptism or a membership, uh, it seems that you like testimonies too. Uh, Many of us find them encouraging. But why are testimonies so often powerful and compelling? Well, I think it's because in a testimony, you see the wonderful promises of the Almighty God coming into the life of a real and ordinary person like us. Uh, And as we hear a testimony, often we start resonating with aspects of uh, the person's journey that they've been on to come to know Jesus. But also, when we listen to an encouraging testimony, um, we're reminded that the message of Jesus really is powerful. People really do have their lives saved and changed by him. Well, if you like testimonies, then... One of the things you'll be encouraged to know is that God's word is full of them, full of real-life stories of people being changed by God, saved by God. You see, contrary to popular opinion, uh, the Bible is not just a book of rules. It's not just page after page of theological truths presented in systematic fashion. Throughout the Bible, God is not only revealing Uh, truth about himself to us and our need for Jesus. He's also describing for us powerful and true accounts of ordinary people like us who are saved and changed by Jesus, his son. And tonight we're going to hear of one of those accounts as we reflect on the story of the disciple Peter. And I think this is a great story because it tells those of us who really feel our sin deeply, that Jesus does forgive us. And it tells those of us who kind of question our usefulness in the church that actually Jesus can use us. And I think there are two things that we often need to hear. And I've broken the story into two parts. Firstly, failed but now forgiven. And secondly, restored but now renewed. So first, Peter had failed Jesus, but had now found forgiveness from Jesus. And Jesus clearly has forgiven Peter as we reflect on the text before us. I mean, he has made Peter breakfast already. We saw that last week. He's been walking with Peter as a friend walks with another friend on the beach. He restores Peter to service among his people, calls him to follow him. But you see, to fully grasp the heights of Jesus' forgiveness that is happening here, we actually need to appreciate the depths of Peter's sin. So how bad had Peter failed Jesus? 
Well, to answer that question, we actually need to go back to the night of Jesus' arrest, just before he was sentenced to death. You see, earlier that night, Jesus had spoken to his disciples of his upcoming betrayal and death, and amidst all of this, Peter had boldly promised to Jesus that he would stand by his side no matter what. In John 13, 38, we see Peter confidently saying, I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, if, if you go down, I go down. Now that's a big promise. But how does Jesus' promised loyalty hold up when it's actually put to the test? Well, a few hours after making that statement, we see in the Gospels that Jesus is arrested. He's taken to the quarters of the high priest, and he's actually condemned to death by the religious rulers in that building. And actually, in that moment, Peter's right there outside that building in the courtyard of the high priest, and, and he actually hears the verdict. He finds out in that moment that, the, that his Lord is facing death now for certain. So what does he do? Because this is the moment where true loyalty comes to the fore, is it not? This is the moment when, when Peter should burst through those doors and say, if you go down, Jesus, I'm going down too. I will lay down my life for you. But what happens in Jesus' moment of need? What does Peter do? Well, Peter denies having anything to do with Jesus. This is a shameful betrayal. It's what I've called a cowardly, consistent, and condemning betrayal. See, firstly, it's cowardly. Peter denies knowing Jesus, not in front of a group of threatening, angry men, but in front of a mere servant girl standing next to him at the fire in the courtyard, just asking him a simple question. We see it in John 18, verse 17. We read this girl's question. You aren't one of the man, this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. But second, it's a consistent betrayal. As Jesus had predicted, Peter denies him not once, not twice, but three times. You see, Peter couldn't claim that this was kind of like a momentary slip-up. He had two other options, opportunities to redeem himself, but he had failed. His betrayal was consistent. But third, Peter's betrayal of Jesus was utterly condemning. This comes out most strongly in the first passage you heard read in uh, Matthew 26, in Peter's third and most vehement denial. See, look at how Matthew records what Peter says there. Uh, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Now surely you are one of them. You're one of Jesus' disciples. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. And you see, we actually need to appreciate the gravity of what Peter just said in this moment. You see, by invoking curses on himself, Peter is effectively saying, may God curse and condemn me if what I'm saying to you is a lie. In Peter's blind desperation to rid himself of any affiliation with Jesus, Peter is even prepared to place himself under the wrath of the holy God. Now, I think that level of rejection 
is breathtaking. See, are you sensing the shame of this moment? Peter had publicly denied Jesus in a cowardly, consistent and condemning way. Uh, Before we can feel the glory of Jesus' forgiveness, we actually have to wrestle with the horror of human sin. And you see, Peter, immediately following this moment, feels that horror. In Matthew 26, we, we read that the rooster crows. He remembers how Jesus had predicted this failure. His sin finally catches up with him. He sees it in pure daylight. And all he can do is weep bitterly. He can't take the words back. It's done. It's only as we see the horror of Peter's sin that the forgiveness and grace that Jesus offers to us in our passage, or offers to Peter in our passage, becomes clear. You see, Peter deserved to be rejected by God for rejecting God's Son. Now, sometimes we don't easily feel that because as Christians, we sort of have a warm attitude towards Peter. We're naturally inclined to like him, just as we're naturally inclined to dislike the Pharisees throughout the Bible. But you see, instead of being uh, punished by God and punished by Jesus, Peter actually finds forgiveness for all his sins. Uh, We see this in the text. Uh, The risen Jesus comes to him on the beach, not with the sword of judgment, but with a picnic hamper of fish and bread, as it turns out. Jesus comes to Peter on that beach and lets him know that that God's promise of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in him, well, that can still be his if he once more trusts and follows Jesus. See, Jesus had died on the cross bearing the sins of all those who trust in him, even Peter, You see, Peter may have been ashamed by Jesus in that uh, horrible moment, but Jesus is letting Peter know that he won't be ashamed of him. And what I love about uh, and what I love about this moment in Peter's life is that he actually gets that. He knows his only hope is found in Jesus, the very one who is rejected. And that's why I think when he first sees and recognizes Jesus there on the beach, back in verse 7, last week's passage, Peter can't get to his Savior fast enough. He jumps in the water, swims, swims to him, to his only hope, his friend, his Lord, his Savior. And as Peter comes, Jesus welcomes him. That's what we see in the passage. And this is why Jesus can speak to Peter as a friend in this passage. That is why he walks with him, welcomes him, serves him breakfast. See, even though it was, it was painful to, to be asked three times whether he loves Jesus, Jesus actually does this to symbolize that Peter's threefold denial has been dealt with and forgiven through his work on the cross. And I think for the rest of Peter's life, 
he held on to that truth, that he was an unrighteous man who had been saved by a righteous man, a righteous saviour, Jesus. I mean, we see it come out in his letter to the Christians in Asia Minor in 1 Peter 3.18. Peter says these words as an elderly pastor, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. See, God is giving us Peter's testimony to remind us of the forgiveness we all need and we can all have if we trust him. You see, the truth is, like Peter, we've all actually rejected God's son. Uh, In some way, it may not have been so dramatic like Peter, so public, but actually in each one of us lay a sinful heart that wants to distance ourselves from Jesus, preferring to live on our terms and not his terms. See, like Peter, we've all actually ignored Jesus, rejected him. We actually all deserve to be ignored and rejected back. But Peter's story reminds us that the only hope of being forgiven of the guilt of sin is to do what Peter does and run, or swim, depending on your context, run to Jesus. He will welcome you, he will forgive you and save you from God's judgment, welcoming you into eternal life. Have you run to Jesus yet? Can you say you know your sins are forgiven? See, if you haven't run to Jesus yet, if you're not trusting him, God actually will hold you to the account of that shameful sin that lies in all of us. But if you have run to Jesus, if your hope is in him, the forgiveness you see here, that's yours. The eternal life that John has been preaching about throughout this gospel, that's yours. He makes that very clear in verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. It's true. I've always loved what John Newton, the former slave trader turned Christian minister, the 18th century, had to say at the end of his life. Sort of taps into this. He says, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, yet Christ is a great saviour. If Christ welcomes Peter into fellowship and forgives him, then he can do it for any of us. But second, following his forgiveness, uh, Peter is not only restored to service, He's also renewed for service. Sometimes I think we can forget that Jesus uses flawed people in his service among his people. Sometimes it's easy to think that service in Jesus' kingdom, well, that's that's reserved for Christians who have got it all together, who are more bold in their faith, more intelligent. Uh, Not long after I moved to Melbourne, (coughs) I remember being in a discussion with a number of other Christians. And at one point during the conversation, one of the people in the group started making a point about how Christians need to be more bold in our witness. 
Now, in the process of making this point, he actually decided to use me as a negative example. The comment went something like this. See, take Chris here for a moment. He is the ultimate nice guy. Everyone loves to have a chat with Chris, but the thing about a nice guy like Chris is I reckon he'd rarely be willing to sacrifice his niceness to confront someone with the gospel. Uh, I don't think I've ever been more devastated to be called a nice guy. Uh, See, the thing is, in that moment, I kind of knew I was a bit of a nice guy who might not like having those sort of conversations. Uh, I knew there was truth to what he was saying, but the, the experience of being confronted by that kind of personal failure well, just left me feeling very inadequate as a disciple of Jesus. And on top of all that was the, the added level of personal shame, knowing that my failings weren't just known by me, but everyone else in the group. Now, I don't know if you can resonate with what I'm going to say next, but following this moment, I reckon I was convinced of one thing, but not as convinced of another. I was convinced that I was someone who was still a Christian. I was still forgiven by Jesus. I was convinced that Jesus had forgiven me, but I was less convinced that I could be used by Jesus in his service. See, in my mind, I was just the nice guy who was a coward about my faith. Not exactly an inspiring self-image to draw me into ministry. Now, I don't know if you can resonate with any of that, but if you can, let me just show you that this is the thing I love about Peter's testimony. It shows us that Jesus still chooses to use and renew and renew all the cowards, the failures, the selfish sinners that he has chosen to forgive and redeem. So actually there's hope for us yet. So you see, not only does Jesus graciously forgive Peter of his sin, he restores him to service. Jesus reinstates Peter as one of the main leaders of the early church. He's commissioned by Jesus to feed my lambs, verse 15. See it again, feed my sheep, verse 17. Peter must feed Jesus' people with Jesus' word, which is the scriptures. That's how we grow. But Peter's a pastor, so he's also to take care of the sheep, verse 16. He's got to help guide them through difficult times, protect them from harm where he can, offer wisdom in tough situations. Uh, In his grace, Jesus restores his failed disciple to a position of pastoral leadership. Peter is used by Jesus, the same Peter who was saying, I don't know the man. You see, Peter's not just placed in the sin bin for the rest of his life. Jesus restores him. But Jesus doesn't just restore Peter to service. He renews him for service. Uh, Jesus is committed to saving failures, using failures, and renewing failures. How gracious is that, and what a privilege. And there are really three big aspects that I want to finish on 
um, of Peter's renewal for ministry that I just want to highlight. His motivation, his identity, his focus. And whether or not you're a leader in church, uh, it actually doesn't matter. We all need to be renewed in our service and discipleship by listening to Jesus. So first, Jesus renews Peter's motivation for service. You see, what does Jesus want to know from Peter more than anything as he's restoring him to service? Do you love me? We see that in verse 15, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Again in verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Love of Jesus must be the fuel that drives our service. Our love of people is important. Our gifts are important. But it's actually love of Jesus that must be our primary motivation if we're going to be sustained in our service among God's people. Because here's the reality. Serving Jesus means dying to yourself. Jesus first, me second. Now, if you're listening and you're not a Christian, don't misunderstand me. Christians uh, die to themselves confident that in Jesus they actually, we actually gain life to the full for eternity. There is an underlying joy that we have knowing we are honouring Jesus with our actions. But dying to ourselves is still difficult most of the time. You see, think about where Peter's service ends up leading him in the text. Look at what Jesus um, predicts, says will happen. Verse 18, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now, church tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down for his faith on an upside-down cross. Um, church tradition, again, has it that Peter felt unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. But what's clear in verse 18 that, is that Peter didn't want to go through that. He leads you where you do not want to go. So why did he go? Why did he not just renounce Jesus and, and save himself? Why did he not just abandon the sheep and live out his retirement in the nice suburbs of Rome? Well, because he loved Jesus. Jesus became everything to Peter. He had come to know the greater sacrifice that Jesus had made for him at the cross. He would experienced that we've talked about Jesus' amazing forgiveness that covered his shame. He knew that while his executioners might take his earthly life, Jesus was faithful to raise him up for eternity. And not just him, but those he had been called to pastor. And I think we need that view of Jesus. You see, love of Jesus is the fuel we need for service among his people. When someone unfairly criticizes your Bible study leading or your AV proficiency, what will sustain you and help you continue to die to yourself and not unload on them back? What's well, love of Jesus? Remembering that he too knows what it is to feel rejected, 
but he endured rejection and even death because he first loved us. Or when you aren't acknowledged in your service, what will help you die to your bitterness? Well, again, it's love of Jesus. The joy of knowing your wonderful saviour sees every one of those bin bags you're putting in the bin, every one of those dishes you're putting away. I don't know about you, but I've been getting serious Zoom fatigue lately. Our ministry just seems at the moment like one endless screen session. And I'm just feeling tired about that. I'm feeling tired of hearing the sentence, can you turn your mute off? I'm tired of the glitches and the dropping out. So why is it worth pushing through? Why is it worth continuing, continuing to serve Jesus amidst all this Zoom fatigue? That's because I love Jesus. And it seems in this moment that Zoom is one of the best ways that I can be using to encourage his people. So I've just got to learn to stop groaning and start Zooming. See, love of Jesus, that is what will help us keep going in our service. But second, Jesus renews Peter's identity within his service. He reminds Peter that his chief identity is actually as a follower, even though he's being restored as a leader. See, notice that in the text, Jesus tells Peter in verse 19, follow me. Again in verse 22, Peter says, uh, Jesus says to Peter, you must follow me. Peter was being put in leadership over Jesus' sheep, but actually Peter is being reminded here that he is a sheep himself. And I think following his betrayal of Jesus, he's actually in a prime position to really understand that now. You see, he, like Jesus' other sheep, now knows that he's prone to wander. He, like Jesus' other sheep, needed the good shepherd to lay down his life for him too. Peter had assumed that he had the courage of a lion, but actually discovered that he was as cowardly as any one of Jesus' other sheep. And you see, I think there's particular application here for those of us who serve in positions of leadership within the church. As a pastor, an elder, a youth group leader, a kids' ministry leader, growth group leader, you who are a leader are actually forced, first and foremost a follower, a follower of Jesus. And you see, the more we remember that we are all sheep, the more we'll remember to lead in the humble way Jesus wants us to, the more we'll be willing to actually direct people away from putting their hope in us as the leader and onto Jesus, the true and ultimate leader. So you remember Jesus tells Peter three times that these are my sheep, said, says Jesus, not Peter's sheep. And remembering your sheep-like identity actually helps keep you honest about your capacity for failure. It actually helps keep you honest about the fact that you're no less a sinner than the people you're serving. You constantly need Jesus' grace. You constantly need his guidance. See, it's when we think that we're untouchable lions, that's when things go wrong. Uh, During an evening church meeting a number of years ago, I remember uh, our pastor, Neil, was asked what had kept him serving faithfully in ministry. 
And the answer wasn't, well, I've kept my Greek and Hebrew up, which he has. The answer wasn't, well, I've kept up my daily devotions, which I'm sure he has. I remember it word for word. He said, I've never doubted my capacity for catastrophic sin. You see, that is the voice of a shepherd who knows he's also a sheep and who depends on Jesus alone. But third, Jesus renews Peter's focus in service. See, what is interesting in this passage is just how quickly Peter needs to be reminded about his focus in ministry. At the end of verse 19, Peter says, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. But then what's the very next thing we read in verse 20? Peter turned. Immediately his focus shifts. And he saw the disciple who Jesus loved following him. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? See, Peter's gaze moves from Jesus to John. Uh, Jesus, you say that I'm going to glorify God by a martyr's death, okay, but what about John? Uh, Is he going to have to do something as self-sacrificing as that? Are you going to use him as much as you're going to use me? I'm just kind of interested. But notice how Jesus, Jesus gently but firmly shuts down this comparison game right from the start. Verse 22, Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. See, Peter, John's service is none of your business. You can't follow me looking sideways at those around you, Peter. Uh, We're constantly telling our three-year-old to keep her eyes forward when she's on her balance bike. You see, Essie has a tendency to get distracted by a lot of very interesting things like a tree or a plane in the sky. You don't see many of those anymore. Or an interesting fence post. And as soon as she loses her focus, she gets the wobbles and next minute she's face down on someone's nature strip. I think it's easy to get the wobbles as a follower of Jesus. It's easy to take our eyes off Jesus and focus on the service of others and their opinions of us. If only I could share my faith like she does. If only I had more of a bubbly personality like that other leader does. I wonder what that person thought of my study. And now sometimes it can be helpful to reflect on how others go about their various forms of service and hear hear critique, but but I actually think it's easy for us to move from constructive to crippling. See, instead of following Jesus with freedom and joy, our service becomes frustrated by these feelings of insecurity and inadequacy. But Jesus is saying to each one of us, you must follow me. Don't overly concern yourself with how that person is going or what they think of you. You must lean into the grace that I give you and be faithful to me. I've given you a Neil quote, so I better give you an Andy quote, and I might come back with a Clinton quote next week. But Andy May used to say to me during my traineeship a number of years ago, Chris, in your ministry, you must remember you have an audience of one. It's Jesus we follow. 
It's his opinion that truly matters. It's his grace that sustains us and grows us, and it is Jesus who will be waiting to welcome us into his eternal kingdom on that last day. Peter himself says that in verse 5 to his fellow elders. And when the chief shepherd appears, you shall receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Jesus renews Peter for service, his motivation, his identity, his focus. Well, tonight we've heard Peter's story of being forgiven being restored and renewed by Jesus. Uh, This is the last picture that John leaves us with in his gospel. Jesus and Peter, friends reunited, walking side by side on a beach. No longer shame, no longer judgment. And it's really a lovely picture, I think, to finish on in this gospel because it reminds us all where we ultimately need to be in a lasting fellowship with the Son of God, Now, soon we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper and we'll be reminded once again of the great cost Jesus paid on the cross to establish that fellowship with us all as Christians. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. We are simply like Peter, who can only run to Jesus, failed but now forgiven, restored and being renewed. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I I thank you, Lord, uh, that the Lord Jesus came to save sinners. I thank you you for his mercy to us, Lord. I thank you that he chooses to forgive us of our sin and to use us and renew us for his service. May we trust him, Lord, and may we live for him in service this week. Amen.